Welcome into the Otson Audibles podcast mailbag edition on its correct day, Monday. Had to double check if it was even Monday. Still in kind of in that holiday mode. Uh, Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Happy New Year to you all. Uh, it's our first podcast for the 2022 year. Um, and it, it's it's a good day because it's Monday. Uh, it's a new year, and we're doing the podcast on the correct day for the mailbag, which is a home run, it feels like, at this point, how things are going. Did we have a single Monday mailbag in December? I think we missed every one almost. It, it, we may have Probably. had one because <laughs> the news just kind of kept coming, and it didn't make sense to do the mailbag or we were expecting news to come and we didn't want to address what we knew we we're going to get a ton of questions on it and without having information. Yeah, no, it was weird. Cause it felt like every Monday was like, I think Mario Cristobal was announced on a Monday. Dan yep. Lanning was announced on a Monday. Um, the next Monday was Matt was in San Antonio. I, th- I mean, it's like there were, there was, it was hard to get it right. So here we are back on a Monday. I digress. Six questions in um, a lot of fun topics kind of looking at, of course, we're looking in the future. We're doing a little bit of looking back. We're looking at, we're going to finish with a basketball question, which I think is our, our first basketball question of <laughs> the podcast since probably spring of 2021. So that'll be fun. Um, but let's start with this one from at Nash Duckaneer. What are your way too early predictions for Oregon's record in the 2022 season? And this is what he says. My prediction is 11-2 and two with losses to Georgia and Utah, clinching the North, winning the Pac-12 championship, and being in the running for a college football playoff at season's end. Am I too optimistic? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, I tend to think so. You know, I I mean, I, and I'm curious on you guys' take on this. I think that the Georgia and Utah games, I have a really hard time predicting Oregon to win either game with what we know right now about all three programs. Yeah. Georgia's playing for a national championship. They're, they're really, really good. Um, I know they're going to lose a lot on defense. I still think they're going to be really, really good. There's an infrastructure there that uh, just continues to pump out and the talent there isn't going away. I mean, I think I'll be curious when the team talent composite comes out and, and is finalized for the 2022 season. I still expect Georgia to be right there at the top. They were basically tied mm-hmm. with Alabama this year. I don't know if they will be one or two or three this upcoming season at 22, but I'm going to guess they're going to be at least top four or five. So they're going to be talented. Um, and Utah just kicked the crap out of Oregon in in two straight games and really was i hate to say it the only pac-12 team to really compete in the bowl game against a good opponent like i i tip of the cap to the utes for how they played in that rose bowl that was pretty pretty impressive i know Ohio State had a lot of guys out and i know the second half they they gave them a ton of yards um but you know they, they were right in that game until the end so I, I i agree that those are two ones i have a hard time predicting an oregon win today um and i just think the way the and, and i'll say two other games that are probably pretty obvious or one that's really obvious is BYU is like one mm-hmm. where I know that's, that's it's a coin, hard. That's a coin flip. Oregon's going to be at home. I would expect BYU is going to be another top 15 ish ranked team next year, based upon how they played this year. I know they lost their bowl game, but they were in that range for most of this season. And, and they bring back a fair number of their guys. I think the running back Algiers is gone, but um, they're still going to be a tough squad. And then it's just hard for me to see. So I, I, I and, I'll, and I'll say, I'll, I'll say Oregon beats BYU, but I still have a hard time saying they're going to get through the Pac-12 at eight and one with one loss at Utah, um, just because of the grind of what that season is. And I don't know if this Oregon's team is necessarily going to be better than the one we just watched. I, I could be totally off base on that. I think the potential is high, and we're going to get to some of those reasons in future questions. But I'm kind of thinking this is a a ten and three get to the conference championship game. I will say, I think they'll make, they'll win the division. I just have a hard time seeing anyone in the division being better than Oregon and, and ultimately doing enough to win it. I think it's fair to prick, predict a division win. I also have a hard time saying beating Utah just based on what we saw this year, but my hope here's, here's what I'll say. My, my hope would be by the time you get to a conference championship game, if it is Oregon versus Utah, that Oregon competes a heck of a lot better and shows that they can contend. And if they do win that game, there you go. There's some noticeable growth and improvement in Dan Landing's first season from what we saw under Mario Cristobal in his last. Boy, I mean, this schedule's really hard, um, especially seeing how BYU played this season and their success against the Pac-12. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think this happens, but I do think there is a scenario out there that's p- possible 
that Oregon opens the year one and two. And oh, 100%. Definitely possible. Like, like that is a very real thing here. That that could happen. Um, I, I, like you, Eric, I have a hard time right now picking Georgia, uh, Oregon to beat Georgia or Oregon to beat Utah, just based off of where the three teams are at right now. Um, beyond that, I think Oregon's going to drop a game between BYU, uh, between Oregon State, and I kind of want to throw out Washington State. I, I just I don't think they're going to lose that game, but that's always there's always a difficult road game for Oregon, and that is one that always seems to be lately a, a, a difficult one. Don't sleep on Oregon State either. Um, mm-hmm. Before we were doing this podcast, I was looking at their depth chart. I, I, I think they lose four or five guys from their starting lineup this season. I mean, yes, B.J. Baylor is gone, but they bring back a lot of their team. And I understand that, that you know, what, what, what did they finish? Seven and six, uh, to, you know, on the year they lost their bowl game against Utah State, but – they went through the grind and learned what it took to win, that you can't take games off against you know opponents like Colorado. And this is just going to be – Oregon is by far the more talented team on paper. But this is the these are the types of games where the lesser talented team on paper wins because they bring back a ton of guys. They have a, a bunch of continuity. And the other team is young – they have a new coaching staff. It's a it's year one in Dan Lanning era. Those are the types of, of scenarios when you see the underdog get the win. And so I, while I don't think they lose at Oregon State on January 3rd, uh, that's a game that, that scares me. So I, I, I think they, they probably go nine and three in the regular season. They probably make the Pac-12 championship game. And it, it becomes a can you win and get the upset for the second time against Utah in three weeks? Uh, or, or does Utah run the table again and you're nine and four and you're either going back to the Alamo Bowl or maybe uh, the Pac-12 makes adjustment and you go to a different bowl game? To answer Nash Duckaneer's question of if he's being too optimistic with an 11 and two prediction, yes. Uh, this is it's a hard schedule, like Matt said. Um, I will say that I think it's it's a hard schedule, but I do think it's favorable for Oregon just because of who they get to play at home comparatively to last year. Like they get Utah at home, they get UCLA at home, they get BYU at home. Those are three really tough games com- potentially, and to have those at home is really good for Oregon's but like opportunity to win those football games. But I think there's a legitimate chance, just like what Matt said. I think it's probable that Oregon starts the season one and two. Um, I'm willing to chalk up that Georgia game as a loss right now, even on January 3rd of 2022, um, just because Georgia's going to come back with most of their offensive weapons still there. And that's going to really, really hurt um, Oregon just because they got some guys on that front. Um, their offensive line is good. Always um, Stetson Bennett can come back for another year. Um, so can JT Daniels, if he chooses to stay, um, if both of them leave, then they have Brock Vandegrift, who's a five-star quarterback in the, in the wings. Um, they still have Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington over at tight end. Um, you know, these are talented dudes. Uh, their running back core comes back, and they're always going to bring in a bunch more five-stars on offense like they're doing this year. Um, and not to mention, although it's a neutral site game, it's in Atlanta, which isn't very neutral. So that that's a really hard one. And for if Oregon loses that, I don't think anybody would really blame them. But the potential to win is why you, you know, schedule these out of conference games, these really tough ones. Um, you saw with Ohio State, but BYU is obviously going to be a very hard team, um, very well coached, very physical, um, just a really big early season test. Um, BYU, basically the Pac-12 South champions this year too. So I have to take that into consideration and in their success against the Pac-12. Um, and yeah, Utah, uh, UCLA, depending on what Chip Kelly is up to, I know that he's, looking for a contract extension, but hasn't gotten one yet. Um, we'll see what happens there, but they still are a talented team. Um, they're still going to have a great offense. And I, I don't know, it's hard for me to predict this right now because there's going to be so many more moving parts before we even come close to spring ball. 
really. Um, and before we even come close to fall camp, um, Dan Lanning seems to have set his coaching staff into place. Uh, we're still waiting on official announcements from the university to call it that, but from all the reports that we've seen, it looks like it's set. Um, and now, so all the attrition, all the recruiting, all of the transfer portal stuff starts now. And so we'll get a better idea what the team will actually look like soon enough. But for now, I would have to say that Oregon is probably a, an eight and four, a nine and three team. I lean more towards the eight and four. I think they can compete for a Pac-12 North team or North division championship. But um, like Matt said, I think Oregon State's going to be good. They return a lot of their guys. Um, I think Washington could come back. Obviously, their transfer portal issues is a little concerning. But they're going to have um, – Michael Penix is a solid quarterback. He was in Indiana. Um, they're going to be a good team. Um, Washington State's going to be a good team again. They showed some real stuff down towards the end of the game – or the end of the season, excuse me. Jaden Delora is coming back. Um, it's just going to be – it's going to be a little difficult, especially considering what Oregon loses and that they have a brand-new coaching staff. Um, the odds are kind of stacked against them, but – I still think that they're a talented enough roster to compete for a Pac-12 North title. I just don't think that they're, I, I don't know, it's still too early, but that's just what it is on January 3rd. Let's, let's flip this for a second. I know we don't want to spend too much time on the first question, but let's flip the question. Would we be surprised if Oregon went 11 and two um, and played in the Pac-12 championship game, whether that's a win or a lose? I definitely wouldn't be surprised if I, I do. I actually think they should win the division, and I, I just don't see there being a team that's better. Um, but we'll see what happens. Uh, eleven and eleven and two. I, I really think that's a, a lot to ask because there's a ten and three. Ten and three. Ten and three is kind of where I'm was what I predicted. So I think that's realistic. I mean, I I I, I could see them realistically getting to yeah to, to to ten wins. I don't think that's crazy. I think eleven is a lot, man. It's like. You're losing to Georgia. There's a decent chance you lose to BYU. And the Pac-12, I know, and I think the schedule, Jared's right, from a who you play at home perspective is favorable. You get, I would say. It's really nice. The the, the better teams, for the most part, are at home. But it's still, I mean, going 8-1 and one is is not, 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 too, not too easy. I mean, Oregon kind of struggled to do that this year. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think 10-3 and three is, is not ridiculous at all. I think 11-2 and two would be total best case scenario. And, and again, so, I mean, again, these are way too early and that's part of the, the fun with this. We might have very different answers by the time we get through spring, you know, I mean, right. Oregon, Oregon's roster is still very much in flux, Matt. I mean, you, you were doing some scholarship math. They've got room for 12, 13 guys or something. You were saying, I forget what your number yeah. was. 12. Yeah. So like, what, what do they do with those 12 spots? I and mean, that could drastically change some of this for me. Cause I, I, we're going to, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole cause we're going to get into the, some of this stuff later, but there's position groups where they definitely need to make additions with, and they mm -hmm. haven't made those. And maybe they bring in guys with all conference, you know, borderline all conference caliber experience or guys that have started a lot. And you kind of start feeling better about those position groups. Cause I think right now you can look around the, the roster and go, and it's in part because of what Matt said, 73 scholarship athletes right now for 2022 being down 12, the depth is really pretty worrisome at some spots. And I'll probably feel maybe a little more confident about some of this once that's sorted out. I'd be I'd be surprised if they won eleven and two. I think that's really really difficult. I mean, um, we saw this year. This is a, that that Oregon was a team that felt like that had really had that potential to go eleven and two and really compete for uh, potential berth in the conference or in the uh, the playoffs. But it's hard. It's really hard, man. It's really hard. No one in the Pac-12 has gone undefeated in conference play. Um, if you look at next year's schedule with with the, BYU and, and Georgia in the first three weeks, you know, that could be two losses and then have to go undefeated in conference play. And no one's ever done that. And obviously there's going to be a first time for everything, but um, I really, I would be stunned at that 10 and three. I'd be a little surprised. I just don't just knowing that the roster is right now, I cannot like be definitively saying like, Oh, I expect them or like, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, there's just going to be too much movement. It's going to be in flux. Like you said, Eric. So I think, again, I think nine and three, eight and four is a more realistic right now. Ask us again in eight weeks. Who knows? All right. The next three questions are all going to be based upon kind of looking at position groups on the roster. So this will be fun. This is, I think, kind of one of my favorite things to discuss. The first one from at Balabono91. With Bo Nix now on campus, how do you feel about transfer quarterbacks versus ones that were recruited? And then he writes, in the last decade, we saw Vernon Adams, Dakota Prukop, Anthony Brown versus Marcus Mariota and Justin Herbert. 
Will Bo be better than Adams Jr.? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, that's high praise. Yeah, that's probably that's a lot. Not. That's a lot. And, and, and again, I think the point we've made on the Bo Nix thing is we like the move because you had to make the move. I don't think any of us are in love with the player. Um, and, and Vernon Adams is a guy who, gosh, if he would have avoided some injury in that season, you think? I am this college football quarterback. What's that? Tremendous college football he was. Vernon, Vernon was really great, and, and he was having a very special season, if not for some some injuries. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to write off Bo Nix. Is that not being a possibility? I will say they both – like, okay, if we're just going to break down the four transfer quarterbacks of the last decade, I would say Nix, I feel, second best entering yes. among the four. Because I think – look at the yep. backgrounds of Dakota Prukop, and you look at the background of Anthony Brown – and Nix has had, without question, more success to his point in his career as, as, <clears throat> as another two. I don't think there's any doubt. And Vernon was playing FCS versus SEC. Um, you know, that's that's a difference. But Vernon was also, like, a legitimate. Vernon's stats were just absolutely bonkers. Yeah, and he was the FCS, mm-hmm. like, Heisman caliber guy. Like, he was the best of the best in FCS. And so that was different than, you know. And so, like, I, I think it's possible they have, you know, like, best, best case scenario. Like, Bo Nix could have a Vernon Adams kind of season. I mean, you look at what Vernon Adams did. I just pulled this up before we started. Um, you know, 26 to 6 touchdown interception ratio, completed 65% of his passes, threw for 2,600 yards. We should note that was without a couple of games, and he only played <laughs> – that boy, that, that Utah game at home was a disaster. Um, folks will recall that one. He only played a little bit of that one because he was still dealing with an injury. But, you know, he, he, he could have easily had 32, 3,300 yards probably, which would, which would rank near the top of Oregon's list. Shoot. I was, I was looking at it uh, today or a couple of days ago that uh, Anthony Brown's like 2,800 yards this season or eighth all time single season from an Oregon perspective. So that puts into perspective uh, kind of where some of this stuff fits. I understand he played a little more games than other, other quarterbacks, but you know, I, I Adams was really special. I mean, like, the, like here's a, here's a, here's a stat for you against USC. He went 20 of 25 for 407 yards, six touchdowns, and one interception. I mean, that's one of the most spectacular quarterback performances. And Oregon won that game 48-28, and USC was ranked that year. That's like one of the more spectacular quarterback performances against a team of that caliber um, that Oregon's probably had. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, even, even the game he was injured against Michigan State, some people remember this, he – Took a cheap shot from a former teammate at Eastern Washington and then came out against Michigan State the following week, who was number five in the country. And Oregon almost won that game and lost by three. And he was 22 for 39, 309 yards, a touchdown, and two interceptions. And I think it came out afterwards. He was playing with like a broken thumb. So, you know, and Adams was pretty spectacular. Um, I, I think to expect mm-hmm. Knicks to be on that level is really high expectations. Um, I do think he should be better than both Prukop and Brown. Obviously, you he better be better than Prukop because if he's not, he's not hurting for more than half the season. And if he's not better than Brown, then the fan then this fan base is going to be really, really not very fun to be a part of for the next year. Um, but no, I mean, I think so. I think that's a good. I mean, I think that's a good point. And then just to the broader question of of recruited of getting transfer quarterbacks versus recruited quarterbacks. I mean, I, I I don't know if I made this on this show or if it was on a Twitter Spaces we held. My my preference is still that between Ty Thompson, Jay Butterfield, or Robbie Ashford, one of those guys somehow ends up being the, the, the long-term guy, whether it starts in 22 or 23, just because I think something, there is something to be said for continuity. And Oregon has been at its highest point for the, you know, in this last decade with quarterbacks that they kind of groomed and, and, and built. I mean, Darren Thomas mm-hmm. is the other name to mention here. He leads them to a, a championship game. That wasn't a transfer quarterback. Obviously, Mariota does the same. Justin Herbert wins a Rose Bowl. Um, all three of those guys were players they recruited out of high school, developed, and, and got a lot out of. Um, you know, and the, and the flip side is, from a transfer quarterback perspective, really only Anthony Brown. Um, and I guess Vernon Adams, because his season was so uneven, but like kind of led you to some special stuff in their season. I mean, I know Brown, we can be very critical of the way the season ended, but Brown, he, he did take you to a conference championship game. You were eight and one in Pac-12 play. You did beat Ohio State. Like those career marks are surpassed some of what Vernon Adams did in terms of the team success. So but my point is like, I, I, I do think like, absolutely. I would prefer to see these young guys groomed up. I don't know if I think Bo Nix is a guy that uh, I, I would have entered this 2022 year thinking was going to be the starting quarterback and feeling I still don't know how great I feel about it um but boy like I think I take his experience over these young guys until we know what we've got from them too I I have a hard time saying Bo Nix will be the best of the 
transfer quarterbacks. Um, I'm with you though, Eric. I think he can be the number two out of the the four. Um, and that can still be a really good quarterback. Um, I, I I do think Nix is a little bit more accomplished than Anthony Brown was at Boston College, but that's in part because I think Bo Nix played with better players and um Anthony Brown didn't. And so I'd, I'd be curious what Anthony Brown's stats would have been like when he was coming up through college football at Boston College if, if he was playing at Oregon for four years or if he was at a, another school that was competing for conference championships because Anthony Brown had his best season in his career this year. And I know Duck fans want to say it was terrible, but it wasn't. Uh, and for him, it was his best year ever. Um, and so I, I, I do think that factors in a little bit, um, the, the, the talent that you play around. But I, I look at the quarterback spot and think Bo Nix should be fine. If, if he comes in and if he plays well and he plays slightly better than, than Anthony Brown, you're already ahead of the game because now you've upgraded your quarterback position. Your offensive line is still the same. Your running back group will, will, will be as good if – not better depending on who comes back. Your receiving core um, is certainly promising. Your tight ends are the same unit. So there's so much continuity around the quarterback position that if you just get a little bit of an upgrade at that spot, I think the offense can take a big jump again. Um, and so I, I do think there is a, a chance for Bo Nix to, to come in and, and have a, a, a good performance. Um, and, as for the four, as for the three freshmen, I, I continue to go with if Ty Thompson was as good as the fans want him to be, make him out to be, he would have played this year. It, 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 he would have played, but he's not there yet, and that's okay. It takes it takes some people some time to to get adjusted and get acclimated into play, and so I I I, I think. Bo Nix is probably going to be the starter for the majority of the 2022 football season. Um, and I think one of the freshman quarterbacks will emerge as kind of the heir apparent to Bo Nix and he'll get sprinkled in and we'll get, we'll get a little bit of him while we'll get a majority of Bo Nix. I think, I mean, it's a little unfair to, to already start comparing Bonex to Vernon Adams, just because Vernon yeah. Adams was so damn special at Oregon. Um, literally, just if if he doesn't get injured, I don't know where that season goes, but I know it's really good. Um, and with Knicks, you know, I agree with both of you that heading into the season, he's probably the second best transfer quarterback, like just on the statute on the list, just because of you know Brown was always hurt at Boston College. That was his big issue. Um, you know, two ACL tears, two major knee injuries. That's never a good thing. Um, he also ran like a prehistoric offense. Um, I watched plenty of Boston College games. Uh, Steve Adazio was their head coach, who's now at Colorado State. Um, that was a very, very run-heavy offense. Um, BC always had one of the best offensive lines in the country because they ran the ball all the time. And so him coming to Oregon, it was kind of a, not a similar situation, but um, – Definitely Oregon was a run heavy offense under, under Mario Cristobal. And so, and I thought he was, he performed fine. I mean, we, I mean, I have, I've been on this podcast plenty of times talking about how there are significant flaws in Anthony Brown's game, but he always stepped up. He always was a competitor and a leader. And you always have to salute that. And, and, you know, I, I, the season didn't end how everybody would hope it would for him. Um, But, you know, he never let that get to him. And that's always a good thing. Um, But for, like for Prukop, we all know how that story went. Um, it's my freshman year at Oregon, not a good time. And uh, so Bo Nix has a lot more experience in the SEC, which is great. Um, the, the defenses he's going to play in the Pac-12 just won't be as good, as simple as that. Um, I don't know if that'll necessarily translate into him being a better quarterback or not, but it should be helpful in some way, shape, or form. Um, so you're, you're optimistic. And like Matt just outlined, you have all of these guys coming back. The offense already has a lot of continuity together. Um, we'll see what the running back decisions are. I think that'll be a significant portion of how well this offense orchestrates going forward. Um, but with the entire offensive line back, that's huge, except for George Moore. Um, that's huge. That's going to be a lot of, of help for Bo Nix, just being able to be in a pocket and 
Um, the offensive line last year for Oregon was was good. It was a solid group. It was one of the better on offense, frankly. Um, they have to re-up at wide receiver, and we'll get to that later in this. But um, but in terms of whether I would prefer to see a transfer quarterback come in and take the helm or one of the three true freshmen or one of the three freshmen, excuse me, it's always going to be one of the homegrown guys. Um, that's just – it's a testament to how you develop quarterbacks. It's a testament to how skilled they are. It's a testament to what they could provide to you in the future. Um, and like Matt has said countless times, if Ty Thompson were as good as everybody seemingly advertised, um, he would have been playing. There were plenty of opportunities for him to announce himself to the Duck faithful and to the coaching staff and to the, the sport in general. Um, and he might not have ever gotten there last year. We won't know. We never saw practice. Um, but I think the the trend in college football is to see these five-star quarterbacks do really well in their first or second season. And that sometimes doesn't happen. And that's okay because they could come out in their second or third season and be somebody. Um, I think it's unfair to him to see how good Bryce Young and CJ Stroud and except for this year, but a little glimpse of it last year for DJ Uyunglele. Um, those are, those are hard people to live up to. And I think a lot of people wanted to see Ty Thompson take that next step and be that five-star freshman quarterback who leads a team to some, some potential, but you know, he wasn't learning behind Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields and Mac Jones. Um, so those are, it's a, it's a tough comparison for him. Um, we'll see how he performs this year, but I would, I would like to see him get the starting spot and that's no disrespect to Bo Nix and his capabilities, but just as a pure preference to see you know, that Oregon can develop these guys and, and move forward with one of their own. So you can talk to other recruits and be like, look, we don't need to bring in transfer quarterbacks. We can do this ourselves, but we'll see. And, the, and Jared, I, I do agree with you. I'd like to see the program get to a point where they don't have to rely on transfer quarterbacks, but to your point of one of our own, none of the three freshman quarterbacks are one of Kenny Dillingham and Dan Lanning's own guys. They, I, that's Bo Nix. They went out and, and went and got one of their guys. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, it's not because Bo Nix played with Dillingham at, at, at Auburn. It, it could have been anybody. But they went out and added a piece, which becomes, in retrospect, and lack for a better word, their guy. And so it's now up to the challenge for the three younger quarterbacks to prove to the coaching staff that, they're better than the guy they brought in and I, can they do it? Sure. It would not surprise me one bit if, if, if they could do it. One last, just one last thought here. Cause we're just looked up for almost 30 minutes and we've only done two questions. Um, but that's, that's <laughs> good. more content for the listeners. Uh, I was just going to say, I do remember we had Greg Biggins on for a podcast at some point this last fall. And I did pose the question of like, when you had Ty evaluated as a, very, very high-end four-star. Was that with the expectation he'd be a year one guy? And his answer was no. This was a yes. stealing grade. This was a this guy has potential to be a very, very high-end quarterback. Good point. I don't I don't want to misquote Greg, but you can go back and find the podcast and maybe I'll, I'll pull that up and post it on Duck Territory at some point just because for just to help remind people. But the, the the basically the point was this was he would have been a little surprised if Ty Thompson was just amazing right away. He thought this was going to take a little bit of time. So I think that needs to be said too. Recruiting rankings can be kind of um I think they're hard to sometimes kind of parse through and it's in part because I think maybe we do a bad job of explaining what they are. And sometimes you have to say it comes, this is based upon evaluating as a pro prospect and Ty Thompson grades out very high as a ceiling, as a high end NFL draft choice. Um, doesn't necessarily mean right now, day one, his first year in college, he was expected to come in and just fall out and dominate like some of the guys we've talked about on this podcast. All right. Good point. Good point. Just, just to point, create some context. All right. Third question from at Thorpe theory. With Verone McKinley declaring for the draft, that almost guarantees Jeffrey Bossa goes back to safety, right? What does our depth chart look like at both safety positions for 2022? Hashtag outs and audibles. Um, for a couple thoughts before we even jump into the exercise. Bossa, it was always, the plan was always he was going back to safety. And, and yeah. in fact, we asked countless times to, to Bossa, to Cristobal, to defensive coordinators, to position coaches, is he going to be – isn't he playing so well he can play linebacker? And the answer was the plan is still that he'll be playing defensive back next year. So mm-hmm. I think that's always been the case. Um, and the other thing I was going to say was I did post on DuckTerrico.com on Saturday 
a uh, way too early prediction of a defensive depth chart. So I've kind of gone through this exercise. I included Verona at the time because he hadn't made a decision. That decision came a day later um, on Sunday. But it was a mess trying to figure out the safety nickel positions because of everybody that was back. I mean, I was looking at, like, Verone's obviously starting at one safety spot if he's back. Steve Stevens started eight games this year. So that was hard to parse through. What do you do with him? Jamal Hill and Bennett Williams both played pretty well at nickel. And then you have Jeffrey Bassa. And I was going, like, this is a mess. I think what I get a little bit, I'll say, excited about now is you do have the possibility of starting Hill, Bassa, and Williams at once now. You could find some way of doing this. I, I personally, I, I, it's hard for me to evaluate exactly how this works out. Um, I would probably argue I would still like Bossa to play kind of that nickel hybrid, which is where, by the way, he was playing before the position move. That was where he was working. He was working behind Hill and Williams. Mm-hmm. Let him play that spot. Let's see if Jamal Hill can maybe move back and play a little of that kind of f- field safety, that sort of position, and then let Bennett roam a little bit more as, as the boundary guy. Um, that was kind of where my head is at with this. But you could have some sort of – and that, of course, is now excluding Steve Stevens from the conversation, which is probably a little unfair. I mean, I don't want to say he was an incredible player this last year, but he was solid through eight games. He wasn't a, a total liability. Sure, there were times he took – I know Jared and we watched rewatched games. We noticed sometimes his angle on tackles were a little bit off, and sometimes he was a little late to, um, I guess, respond to where the ball was going on passing downs. But – he was not a bad player. And if he's your fourth guy and he's not even in your starting lineup, that's a really positive thing in my mind in terms of the depth. Um, and boy, you wish you had some of this. We wish one of these guys could just play corner, I guess, because corner is a question, <laughs> massive question mark. But I, you've got four guys who I think could start at safety pretty easily with Jamal Hill, Jeffrey Bassa, Bennett Williams, Steve Stevens. And I'm now including that star position, which will carry over, um, at least based upon Dan Lanning's time. They, they do use a star or a nickel position. Um, kind of rotate that with with a jack outside linebacker. They they do a little bit of it's multiple similar to what Oregon was, but I still anticipate seeing that position played. So I would say Bossa could fit that kind of hybrid spot, and then you've got Hill Williams probably behind him. I think that's pretty exciting from a, just an athletic perspective. Um, again, the weird part here is that these guys mostly have just been like nickel players their whole career. Yeah. So we're talking about kind of removing guys around, and that's why maybe Stevens makes sense because of the starting experience actually playing. Um, boundary this year so but there's a long-winded answer to say there's a lot of guys and it's hard to figure this out right now there there was a significant drop off when Steve Stevens got hurt and Mm -hmm. Jordan Happel moved up into the starting lineup and that's not to say Happel wasn't playing good but Happel couldn't play every single snap and so when Stevens before the injury came happened he had to come off Happel went in and they were fine but then when he got hurt Happel had to come off at some point and there was a big drop off um, and, and so I, I do think there is some some credence there to, to, to say Steve Stevens is going to be in a position to keep his starting spot. I don't think it's an automatic loss, but you're right, Eric, that you got to figure out a way to get Bennett Williams, Jamal Hill, and Jeffrey Bossa on the field at the same time. Um, that could mean Jeffrey Bossa staying at linebacker, which – doesn't make as much sense as it did during the year because knock on wood, you have Justin Flo, Keith back, uh, Keith Brown and Jackson LaDuke all back from injury um, to, to pair with Noah Sewell. But you also look at Jeffrey Bossa was damn good. And is that maybe his natural progression? Um, cornerback is, is going to be interesting. I think Dante Manning and Triquez Bridges are, are two guys that you feel really good about um, as starters. But what about Jaleel Tucker? And if Oregon can get Jaleel Florence back into the fold here, now all of a sudden you throw them with a, uh, Avante Dickerson, Darren Barkins, and Jalen Davies, and you've, you've got a good core again. I do think corner, though, is a position that you try and, and go out and try to find uh, a guy in the portal. Um, Gonzalez from Colorado, who transferred out of the program, entered the portal, which happens to come a couple of days after Demetrius Martin took the job at Oregon. Um, that's a guy I, if I'm Oregon, I, I am trying like heck to get on campus, get for a visit and get him into the football program. Really good football player. I think he was a four-star recruit coming out of high school, has a couple years of eligibility as well. Um, but you're right. It, it's with Verone out now at safety, it's going to create some interesting dynamics of, 
who fits where. And it almost, to me, comes down to if you've got three, three spots, play your three best guys and figure out where they play later. It's not a bad thing for Oregon to have this much depth at a position, considering where they were basically for 60% of the season last year, where their safety spots were in limbo for the most part. Um, but yeah, I think the the, the trio of Bossa, uh, Jamal Hill, and Bennett Williams need to find the field at some point, at basically, hopefully at all at the same time. I'm not exactly sure how Lanning's defense will run, um, but those are your three most talented safeties. Um, presumably. We still haven't seen Bossa actually play safety, but just from how well he's performed a linebacker, um, we're all kind of assuming he's going to be just as good as in his natural habitat of being a safety. Um, but yeah, I think his days as a linebacker are over, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, you know, he's a hard hitter. He's uh, He was really good in coverage at points last year once he learned the position, which is also a really exceptional thing for him to be able to do, like learn a linebacking position on the fly. Um, but to, to go back to just the safety talk in general, like Matt in, like started his sentiment out with was, you know, when Steve Stevens went down, you know, that was hard for Oregon's defense. And like Eric talked about, like we had watched film together and seen that, you know, Steve might not have been the best at like at taking routes for tackles or reactionary stuff or, you know, reading an RPO. But, you know, he, he knew the playbook. He played well. He made tackles. He's a he's a heavy hitter too. He comes down and, and meets running backs at the line of scrimmage. Um, he can do, he can do his job, and that's honestly at some points during college football that's all you need. Um, but yeah, I mean, he right now I think would be fourth, like kind of overall in the depth chart behind the three that I mentioned. Um, and there's still a chance for Oregon to potentially go get somebody in the portal or get somebody in the portal who plays nickel or end cornerback or free safety, whatever the case may be. Um, and there's also the progression of Damon David. We heard a lot about him in, in fall camp. Yeah. And while we didn't really see him play too often because of injuries and um, his own injuries, excuse me, um, we saw him a little bit towards the end. Um, but just from you know what, what the coaching staff said about him, what the players said about him, um, a lot of really good things. And usually those things trans like go, those things actually come to fruition. Um, sometimes it is just, you know, hot air talking about somebody and just really trying to hype them up. But um, he could still be somebody who's a really big uh, contributor to this football team. And so that's something I'll be looking forward to seeing. Um, I think it's Oregon's safety depth is in a really good spot right now. If you have Steve Stevens potentially not starting because he's a solid uh, power five starter. Um, he's someone that you would probably want back there in your, in your safety end. Um, but man, this team with Verone would have been really, really good back there. I, you kind of took my little, I wanted, I wanted to bring up the wild card of Damon David into the conversation because from a body type and skill set perspective, he does fit more of what you would see in that spot that Verone was just playing. Mm -hmm. um, that would be my concern is the similarities between, do you have enough maybe speed and general um, ball hawkness, which is not a word, but you know, that kind of, um, that kind of reactionary person playing that center field spot. Are you lacking that with that group? And that's where Damon is reportedly supposed to really come in and, and kind of that's, I mean, I was told over and over, he was a playmaker. And I think if you read yeah. Rob Mosley's fall camp practice reports, um, a lot of the days they brought up interceptions or big plays. He was always in there. Yep. So I, I think that's a name to be aware of too. And I, I just wanted to note that of like, um, you know, you, you, we've got, we've talked about four names and Damon's a guy who I think can't be ignored. And like, I'll be honest, like this is complete conjecture. I think I'm not confident in Oregon's cornerback position right now. I don't know who the star is. I think you need an elite guy. I'm not saying Damon David is, but if you need to get him on the field, maybe you give him a look there and see if he can, how is he in man-to-man -man coverage? How is he playing that position? Is that a fit? I mean, size-wise, he's not, it's not like he is a Jamal Hill or a Jeffrey Bossa where he's 220 pounds and built like a truck and you're kind of going like, I don't know how effective he's going to be in coverage. I think maybe David could be a fit there hypothetically just kind of speaking off the cuff here just trying to figure out a way to get good players on the field because i have i have reservations about oregon's cornerback room right now i think they have to hit the portal and if i'm right. looking to add at least one or two whether it be a i don't know i'm not sure who's in the junior college ranks who's available uh, but matt brought up christian gonzalez from colorado that's a name to know from a 
transfer portal. I think you got to find a guy or two that can be a sure thing. Cause right now we, I think you go into the season. I have no confidence that you have a lockdown guy. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, think about the kind of corners Oregon has had in its most recent run, whether it be, you know, um, well, we'll start with Thomas Graham and the Omni Lenore and then the transition to, to this last year with McHale um, being an all-conference guy in 2020. I mean, the kind of caliber guys you had there, even like prior to that, you know, Ugo Amadi played there a little bit. And Arion Springs was a player who was at least kind of a high-end player, I think led the conference in pass deflections. You say what you want about Arion. He wasn't the best player, but he was a veteran guy at least. Like Oregon's bringing back a group that has like four combined starts, and I don't think I think any of the four starts went very well. Um, I don't think, I mean, Dante Manning and Tricos Bridges had a really hard time if we're being honest, in coverage against Oklahoma. To go back and watch the big, a lot of the big pass plays, those guys are not in great position. Um, and the long touchdown was actually Bennett Williams' fault, but that was because he was guarding a guy who runs like a 4-3 in the slot, and the guy made like a stutter step move and just went flying by him, and then it's game over. But um, I digress, because I know we have, we're now 40 minutes in, we still have half the show to get to. So I don't, I, are we going to, we should probably go hyperspeed for the rest of Because <laughs> um, we're just all having too much fun talking. Happy Happy New Year to you guys. I guess clearly we haven't spoken recently enough. We just wanted to talk. So <laughs> um, let's jump to the next one, just because we do need to have some level of urgency, or else we're going to be on this for two hours. From, uh, the sh- the Schwazy. Love it. <laughs> That's a weird one to look at. Um, can you provide an overview of the returning wide receiver depth and departures due to NFL transfers and kids for whatever reason who did not return in 2021? Um, sure. Um, the current status is what you saw in the bowl game. Those six guys is basically what we, we know you have. And those six guys being <laughs> one of which is a converted running back. Um, you know, it's funny because the receiver position, I feel really good about that feeling of it. The depth of it, I'm concerned. This is where we got another question in a moment here about some portal stuff that I think we'll get to. Um, because I think you've got to address receiver in the portal at some way. You've got to at least add some some depth here because you don't have a lot of meat on the bones. I feel great about the starting three of Chris Hudson, probably in the slot, and the Dante Thornton and Trey Franklin around them. That's awesome. I think Isaiah Crocker. Huge props to him for like at least showing he has a pulse and he can make some plays and he's good in space. Like I had, I I think Matt, you and I had kind of written him off a little bit in conversations the last year or two. To be honest, I mean he just wasn't a factor at all. This is his fourth year; he hadn't played. I think Isaiah is somebody who you can at least kind of okay if he's your sixth or seventh guy or your fifth or sixth guy. That's not a bad spot. He's he's serviceable there. So I feel decent including him in that group. And then you've got the two true freshmen who really we don't know a ton about at this position. I think Seven McGee makes sense as a backup slot based upon his skill set. And I think Isaiah Bravard is a name to know, but I don't know much about him. He had one catch in the bowl game. It was a screen pass. It went for six yards. It was his only, I think, pass probably target all season. I think he only played in the Stony Brook game previously. So, I mean, we don't know a lot about those two guys, that receiver, which is, I think, a little concerning. Um, yeah, I don't know how much we want to get to. The guys aren't here, but those are the six guys that are. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions about Josh Delgado and Lance Wilhoit. And I, I I want to address it and to say, like, we're not going to – we don't have entire clarity, but we'll say Wilhoit was not with the team. Delgado was, but for whatever reason, was working with the scout team rather than the team team. Um, and he didn't travel to the uh, Alamo Bowl either, by the way. Which he is, wasn't there. Which is bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if we can count on either guy for 22. That's kind of where I'm at entering this. And I, there, there, I know there was a message board post on our on duckterritory.com asking for, like, demanding answers. Like, this is some sort of, like, government top secret. Like, we're, I don't know, uh, we're, we're, like, holding, you know, important government secrets from uh, – it's not – we, we don't necessarily have incredible clarity on it other than what we're sharing is what I'll say. And if we did have more clarity, that doesn't necessarily mean we'd share all the details anyway. But the point is I don't think you can count either one of those guys, just, like, point blank. I, so don't, don't consider them part of the equation. So I legitimately, I look at this and go, like – you might have six guys right now and to have a viable unit, you need at least nine, probably need 10 on the roster. So mm-hmm. whether that be Stefan Johnson, who's still a verbal commitment for Oregon, but didn't sign in the fall or in December. Um, there's a name if they, if, if they just, if it's simple as, Hey, let's get him signed up. Now you're at seven. Um, but you still need to go out and you need to hit the portal and you need to find some prep guys because depth here is a problem. Um, I think if the three guys that I've mentioned as a starters are your three best receivers, I don't necessarily think that's a bad situation because I think the ceiling for those three are very high. But if the three I just mentioned a moment ago are your only backups, you're in a world of hurt and you're just asking for problems. And I know Dan Lanning and Kenny Dillon know this, which is why they've reportedly targeted a couple of, of transfer portal guys. But 
they, they need to make some additions here. There's no doubt about it. And I'll toss it to Matt in terms of like, I don't know. What's your, what's your opinion on the position right now? Yeah. Well, there's, <clears throat> excuse me. On the, <clears throat> on the depth chart, there's eight guys on scholarship. None of them are seniors. There's one junior. Uh, there is one redshirt freshman. There is an incoming guy in Steven Johnson. Um, he will take an official visit to Oregon. He's currently committed. He just didn't sign. Um, so potentially nine. But like you said, Delgado and Will Hoyt just simply never saw the field this year. Uh, Delgado was on scout team. Will Hoyt, we just never saw. Like, we literally never saw him at practice. Mm-hmm. So I, having the confidence that those two guys will, will be factors in 2022 – feels very optimistic um and so they basically look at this and let's just say johnson signs they have seven guys they need to hit the portal hard yep. and you know jacob Cohen, depending upon when you listen to this podcast he's a utep receiver he's got oregon in his top five maybe he commits to oregon i don't expect it i think he goes to arizona he's also considering florida lsu south carolina um but you, you gotta find you gotta find some bodies and they're bringing in a four-star athlete in Arliss Boardingham from Southern California for an official visit here in a couple weeks. Uh, this is a guy that's six foot five, 230 pounds, like a hybrid tight end wide receiver type. So he's not necessarily a burner, but he's definitely a different body type than anyone else on the roster at receiver. Um, maybe he grows into a tight end down the road, but that's okay if you need him to be a receiver right now. And he's, he's still in that frame, that skill set to be one. But um, you, you need guys. And it's almost kind of one of those deals where you may, you may need to, um, if, if we're really being honest. And, and maybe it's there's a log jam at, at safety right now with positions. Maybe Brian Addison moves back to receiver. You know, he, that would make some sense from a body's perspective. It, it would hurt his development because he's gone back and forth multiple times now um but if you need bodies that's one that works and he's, he's had some success at receiver as well where's damon da- or sorry where's where's david davis when you need him somebody just yeah, show right. him play either position sorry go ahead uh no i'll keep this relatively short um just because we're all on the same page you need you need bodies um whether that is a prep guy a high school kid and a recruit or whether that's through the portal um, Oregon just needs dudes just into in potential of injuries. I mean, um, you saw this year, you know, Oregon's top four wide receivers are either out with injury or they enter the transfer portal and that, that kills. Um, and you can see how, you know, if Oregon were to land a bigger fish in the portal, um, you can see how that can kind of change a program. I mean, we saw it with Joan Johnson in 2019, you know, that Oregon, obviously Oregon's wide receiving depth wasn't as talented as it is now then but you know that was still an instant impact guy and that kind of i don't know like um that kind of body type could be something that oregon needs and um that big like almost tight end and now he is a tight end of the saints but uh, we'll, we'll see what oregon does there um but i will say with the freshman the three that you have with hudson thornton and troy franklin um that's a pretty good start you know i was impressed with them against oklahoma um they got a lot better towards the end of the season um, Chris Hudson is, has a knack for finding open space, which you love. It's kind of like how Jalen Red was like his first couple of years with Herbert, just always found open space, always gave himself an opportunity to make a move and gain, you know, five to 10 more yards. Um, the ability to separate and create space for Dante Thornton and Troy Franklin against Oklahoma, I thought was pretty impressive. Um, I, I felt like that was the one thing that they really needed to work on, um, was their ability to create space and give Anthony Brown or whoever the quarterback is an opportunity to throw them the football. So, I mean, it's a good start, but yeah, having seven dudes as a wide receiver, like as your whole wide receiving room, that, that just can't be the case. Just need to, uh, you know, get more guys and might even be more attrition from that room. We'll find out eventually, but um, the portal or hitting recruiting hard, you know, they just have to do that. This is a follow-up question basically that, We've already answered half of, so this could go really quickly. So we might be on to our final question really fast here. This is from at GoDucksWTD forever. Um, do you see Oregon landing either Jacob Cowing or Brendan Rice in the transfer portal? Rice being Jerry Rice's son, who torched Oregon pretty good when Colorado came to town a couple months ago. It had over 100 yards. That was his career best game. 
he's in the portal now too. Matt, you've already mentioned, we've already talked about Cowing, so I'm not even, you think he's probably headed to Arizona. I think that's kind of the conventional wisdom. Is Rice a name to know, first yeah. off? Like, what do you, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, 100%. You know, he's he loved Oregon uh, coming out of high school. And honestly, Cristobal and that coaching staff probably had his commitment if they wanted it, um, and they just chose to go in a different direction. Um does that spurn him a little bit? I, I'm sure any person that, that wants to go somewhere and is denied can uh, kind of feel a little anger towards that. But he's interested in Oregon. Um, Oregon's interested in him. And it just basically comes down to if, okay, we've got room to maybe add one or two transfers. Is this a guy we want to use on one of those two or one spots uh, that we have? And it's going to be a case of potential to be good, or is he going to be good right away? And I think Brendan Rice is one that falls more in line of his best football is still a little bit ahead of him. He's not playing mm-hmm. instantly, instant success right now. And is that what you need for this team? Or is it better to go out and get a veteran guy um, that can come in and maybe doesn't have as high of a ceiling, but – can give you better production immediately. Personally, I I, I think Rice is good. Um, I think you look at this roster and there's not a lot of guys. And so potential-wise, it's important to have some some talent long-term. And it's also important to have a guy that's, when given opportunities like he did against Oregon, could perform. I I think he'd be worth taking right now um, if you're Oregon. And now it becomes what other schools jump into the mix uh, does I I would I would expect he comes for a visit um, sometime before he decides, but uh, he is certainly a name to know. Yeah, I think he's a an absolute take if Oregon has the opportunity. Um, you know, he's got a lot of potential in, in his abilities, um, breakaway speed. You know, we saw it against Oregon, um, kick returner potential too. Um, yeah, he's just honestly, he's he's a potential like another body that Oregon could have in the wide receiver room. Um, again, their talent level at the top is pretty good. Uh, I think if Brendan Rice were to choose Oregon, uh, I think he'd be an instant impact guy. Um, I'm not saying that he would catch you know 60 balls and be like a, a 800, 900 yard receiver, but um, he's just a, a more depth, and that's the thing that Oregon needs the most right now in the wide receiver room is just more depth in general. Um, but I do think that he could be somebody who makes an immediate impact and like really, um, and he's just a freshman coming out of Colorado. So that could be um, somebody who takes a year to develop, but could also be somebody who comes in right away and has trained over the offseason and learned and could be somebody who steps in and competes for a starting role. Um, but for Oregon, I think that's an instant take if they have the opportunity. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if he's your third or fourth guy, that's pretty good. You know, right. he was Carl, Colorado's number one guy, albeit in a really crappy pass offense. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, he, you know, I, I, he's shown he can be a focal point in a pass offense again, not a good one, and and have some success on some weeks. I mean, again, against Oregon, he was really impressive. And maybe I'm over analyzing the player based upon his best game, which happened to be the the one I've watched most closely because I covered it. Um, but I came away pretty impressed from him. And if you could add him and, and say. You're either competing with Troy or Dante for a starting outside spot, and you, you may have a shot to win it, or you're one of those guys as primary backups, but you're still playing, you know, 20, 30 snaps a day. That, that's that's mm-hmm. that's not bad. That's pretty darn good there, and that's a that really boasts your core. I agree with Matt though that like I think even if you do take a Rice, I'd love to see a guy who's maybe a senior who's just been around a while who maybe he's not going to come in and and even need to be a starter, but that he can provide some, just a little bit of a veteran presence in the room. Cause it's a really young room with the way it's composed right now. Um, so that I think we're all in agreement. Wide receiver is a position that really needs to be addressed. I think corner needs to be addressed. I think defensive line needs to be addressed. Um, I think those are the clear spots right now. If you're Dan Lanning and Kenny Dillingham and at some point, maybe Tosh Lupoy and you're trying to put together this roster. I think those are the places you start. Last one, we hinted at at the beginning. It's not football. It's basketball time, baby. And it's from at CMS71490. Never have I had less idea of what I'm reading um, from a name here. But uh, maybe that's first name, middle initial, last initial birthday. 
Maybe I just cracked it. July 14th, mm. 1990. That could be a birthday. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop decoding the, uh, the Twitter handles. Thoughts on the men's basketball team. Do they still have a chance of making the big dance in March? What is their optimal starting lineup? And who needs to be their go-to scoring option? I do not cover the men's team. These two guys do. I will start with Matt, who is, I would say, the industry leader in Oregon men's basketball coverage. Matt, the first question, do they still make the big dance? <laughs> right now, no. Um, it's going to be hard. They, they don't have signature wins. There aren't a lot of them left on the board. Um, losing the Arizona State and Stanford games are killers because – this team was is currently eight and six, but if they hadn't lost those two, we're now talking about a, a 10 and four team. And while they don't have any marquee wins, they don't have really any bad losses. And they look at it and say, pull off a win against USC, UCLA, uh, and, and Arizona. When, when two of those three and you, you play those three teams five times, win two or three of them. And then get to the Pac-12 semifinals, and you're probably going to be in as like a 12 or an 11 seed. Now, it's tough. Uh, I, 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 they can get there. They can win their way back into the tournament without having to win the Pac-12 championship uh, in Las Vegas. But it's going to take probably the best run we've seen from an Oregon basketball team in conference play to do it. So they're not out yet, but it's – extremely difficult anything to add on that one jared uh honestly no it's gonna be really hard for them to to make the tournament I, there's still the potential um but like matt said they're gonna have to go on one of the best runs in, in oregon history to really get there they just had um too many embarrassing losses and a couple buzzer beaters and oh, like, that's never good i did just look up their their ken palm rankings um they are 57. So that's, that's not the worst. That could be worse considering the record. It could certainly be worse considering the record. Um, however, like that is not um, scientifically proven to, you know, that means that you're in the tournament. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. Um, luckily, like the Pac-12 hasn't been awful this season, um, but it's been probably less than what everybody expected, but Oregon will have an opportunity to have some, some bigger wins down the line. Um, you know, namely against somebody like USC or UCLA, um, but they they need to figure they need to figure a lot out. Um, and maybe against Utah was a turning point, but we won't know until you know it actually happens. And it's going to be a tough one. All right, last one on the basketball here. It's kind of a two part. Um, and we should note Oregon, by the way, will be playing later on today when you listen to this podcast. They'll play Colorado. What's the tip on that, Matt? Is that six? Seven thirty. Seven thirty. Oh, that's later than I. Thought. Seven o'clock. Sorry, not seven thirty. Either way, still later than I had thought. So, uh, for those on the East Coast, sorry, Jared, you'll be staying up quite late watching this one. But uh, just the, the last one here from CMS seven one four nine zero. What is their? <laughs> just read the whole. Just read the whole thing. <laughs> what is their optimal starting lineup, and who needs to be the go-to score? I think the go-to score part, to me, kind of came together a little bit against Utah with just the combo of Richardson and Young playing at such a high level. Um, do you agree with that? Those are kind of two guys that need to be key offensively. And then the starting lineup part, Matt, I think they're kind of getting a pretty good feel for that. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I think it, it's a weird year because individually this team, you look at all their pieces individually, and I don't think there's one guy you look at in their rotation and say, wow, he, he's not a very good player. They're screwed. They're all pretty <laughs> talented. But for whatever reason, collectively, they just have not been able – to click and they the, the sum of their parts don't equal what they should and it, it's a weird deal um I, I do think will richardson jacob young need to be your focal point i think they're your two best shooters on this team um and i think they're the two best guys at creating their own opportunities to score and thus creating opportunities for everyone else um harman has kind of settled into that third man scoring role um, Quincy Guerrier has kind of settled into being the the glue guy that does just all the the little things, doesn't really worry about scoring. And Fale Dante just continues to get better. Uh, and as his conditioning goes up, 
and his comfort level with his knee um, continues to improve from his injury last season, he's giving you more and more production. Um, I would like to see a little bit more Nate Biddle. Um, I think he's he's providing some shot blocking ability, but you know you're also giving up some toughness that Frank and Dante have that he doesn't have, um, and he's he's not there yet all the way defensively as those other two guys. So you're gonna see a drop off there. But I, I just from a scoring option, you, you, you got, the ball's got to go through Will and Jacob. Um, they're your best two shooters. Uh, Will is your best player, and until they show that they can't do it, the ball needs to run through them Them too. I think, obviously, for the, the scoring impact, it has to be Richardson. Um, I think even more than Young. Just like yeah. His career high is only 26, which happened against Utah. That's, it was kind of surprising when I read that the first time. Um, you just... There's, there's no real, like, killer instinct. It's not like the Dylan Brooks, like, hey, I want to take the last shot or I need to make a shot here. Um, he's he's honestly, he's extremely efficient from deep. Um, every time you kind of look up at the end of the game, he's like, you know, six for eight or, or five for seven, something like that. Um, taking higher volumes is not a bad thing for Will Richardson. Um, it's something that he should probably be doing from beyond the arc. Um, Jacob Young, obviously, as a second scoring option, is, is extremely helpful when he decides to, attack the basket, um, get downhill, and really try to finish with his left hand or drop it off to Nafale Dante or Frank Kutnog, who will usually be open as the center rotates. Um, any scoring that they get from Davion Harmon is acceptable, um, really beneficial, frankly. Um, and Nafale Dante has been looking really good uh, the last few weeks just because of, like Matt said, like he's getting healthier. He's, his stamina is, is building. He's getting comfortable, again, being on the basketball court. Um, in terms of just like what I would want to see from the starting five, um, I think what they have now in terms of um, Richardson, Young, Harmon, Gurrier, and Dante is pretty good. Um, I like uh, Quincy Gurrier being at the four. He's just, um, a, I guess, a small ball four, I guess, even though he's six nine. Um, he can stretch it out every once in a while, but he's somebody who just is just cares about defense and rebounding, and I love those type of players. Um, I would uh, – the only change that I would maybe want to see is Rivaldo Sores starting at the three, have some more size out there, have somebody who uh, can potentially stretch the floor um, and bring Harmon off the bench who could maybe provide a scoring outburst on there because I do think that their bench in terms of just creating uh, separation and creating baskets kind of struggles. Um, and I think Sores starting and Harmon coming off the bench would alleviate that to a point. Um, just because he's a better ball handler and better shot creator. I just have, again, I'm not a, uh, I don't cover the team. These guys do, but I do watch almost every game. Um, actually pretty close to every minute so far. I've been trying to, just trying to make sure I have a better grasp on it. The thing that stands out to me and, and what I was encouraged against Utah and I hope continues is I had kind of felt through the first dozen or so games that this was a team that was comprised of really good supporting cast, but nobody was really a leading, leading man, if that makes sense. And I think, you look at these guys in their careers at other schools, a lot of them had kind of been in supporting cast roles. And now, I mean, Will Richard, think, think about he's been next to Peyton his whole career, and now he's asked to be the main guy. You look at the way Rutgers played you know, the last couple of years and, and Young's role there, um, and even Gary at Syracuse. Like, then they come over and the expectations are going to be leading guys. But what really stood out to me was this down the stretch against Utah was that Will really stepped into that and seemed like, and you made the point of like, where's the Dylan Brooks, Where, and, you know, not Dylan Brooks. Where's the, the next guy? Was where's the Peyton Pritchard, the guy who just you knew was going to want the ball when the shot, you know, when the game mattered. And mm -hmm. uh, I think we're starting to see a little bit of that from Will Richardson. He was a little bit more confident in himself in those big moments against Utah, albeit they kind of stretched the lead out a little bit, so it wasn't like it was a, a one possession game with a minute to play. But I thought he stepped up and, and took those big shots. And I'll be curious tonight against uh, against the Buffs if that continues because it might need to um, for this team to really you know, bring it back to the original question. If they're going to put together a run to the big dance, which these two much more educated Oregon men's basketball reporters have kind of outlined is not easy. It's going to need Will or Jacob or, or probably the combination of the two just to continue to be, I think, confident in those big moments, because I think that stood out in, in some of those close losses. It's just like, who, whose team is this? Who wants to have the ball in their hands? It just didn't feel like you knew who that was every game. There's, seven games in the month of January for Oregon. And to be real, 
they basically need to go six and one. And that starts tonight with Colorado. They go Saturday night to Oregon State. They have a road trip to the L.A. schools who are highly ranked, both of them. Then they've got home games against Washington State, Washington, and Oregon State. Basically, they have to win every game that's against a team not from Southern California. And mm-hmm. I idealistically, they have to go one and one um, against UCLA and USC, preferably 2-0. Um, that would be tremendous, and that would drastically change the scope of things. But if they lose a game to, to Oregon State on the road or if they lose to Colorado tonight, that turns the L.A. games into must-win scenarios. They have to win both of them. And if they lose more than one against the Colorado, Oregon State, or the Washington schools, it basically puts them in a position where they have to win out in February and get to the conference championship game uh, in, in Las Vegas to, to have a chance at an at-large bid. Give me tough. Yeah. They're, they're, they're in a very difficult spot. It's, it's we're not used to this. Um, the coaching staff's not used to this. The players aren't used to this. Fans certainly aren't used to this. Um, and it's going to be, the story is how does this team pull itself out or do they do it at all? Um, yep. and, and that's where we're at right now. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to this extended edition of the mailbag. Uh, until we're back later this week with more discussion, probably around football, probably around some recruiting, probably around some basketball. You've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.